If you've got your Bibles, take with them and turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 1. Let me give just a quick, quick kind of uh, public service announcement about the message today. We're going to be looking, continuing our series on 23 and Jesus, looking at the historical um, genealogy of Jesus and what that tells us about our own lives. Um, we are going to talk about some very sensitive stories today. Okay, and so um, if you are... If your ears don't like sensitive stories from the Bible, we're going to talk about them, all right? Some immoral stories, because they're in here, all right? And so, I'm telling you that for parents, there may be times you want to cover ears, or we have a great kids programming downstairs. For our youth, we may all go cover their ears at some point, or maybe there's some adults out there that we need to cover your ears. I'm just going to do that, all right? And so, we're in this, this series of messages called 23 and... Jesus, and to stay on message and on brand, I thought that I would do the archaeological, I mean the archaeological, the uh, ancestry DNA testing. And so I, a few weeks back, got the 23andMe to stay on brand kit, and I said, in, and this is what I was really hoping for, okay? This is not me, all right? But I don't know if you've seen what they do, you... um you know, there's just some things you have to talk about. This is not the sensitive part, by the way. You have to spit in a tube. Lots of spit. Like a vial of spit in a tube. That's what you have to do. You, How many of you have done this? How many, I'm just seeing who the spitters are. There we are. There we are. All right. And so you put it in a tube. You press it down. It puts some kind of stuff in there. You put it in a package. You send it off. They give you updates all along the way. And then they send you all these results. And they tell you what your DNA says about where you came from. And I'd seen all these stories. And I'd seen things. I'd researched things. I'd looked it up. And lots of people's maps look like this. This is a compilation of where they're from. And there's 67% from European and 30% East, East um Asian, and there's 15% North African, and it's really cool, this kaleidoscope of colors. That's not me. So I got mine back, and I just want to tell you, before I show you my map, I am quite possibly the whitest person you have ever met in your life. <laughs> okay, I know that's shocking. I know all of you are shocked right now. This is my map. That's it. <laughs> And not only that, when you dig deeper, 99.7% of my DNA comes from Europe. But more than that, 99.2% of my DNA comes from Northwestern Europe, England, and Scandinavia. If you've ever seen me try to dance, that is the most unsurprising piece of news you have ever received. I was looking for this kaleidoscope, and I got a spot. In fact, it tells me that when I looked into it, that almost all of my DNA comes from London and Lillehammer, the two whitest cities in Europe from the generations. So, so much for that. All right. I did find out also that I can't match musical pitch, which none of you is surprised about that either. All right. And so we get this information, and it is fascinating. It gives you traits. I found out I have hundreds of relatives, distant relatives in the United States, uh, actually over a 1,000, and, and they tells you where they live and all that kind of stuff. And it's fascinating, and here's the reality I know. It's much more fascinating to me than it is to you. Can I get an amen and ask the Lord? That's what I thought, right? 
Because we care about ours, right? You can take that off. Nobody needs to see that anymore. All right. I heard you. You don't need to see it. I got you. But here's the thing. That's why sometimes when we come to the genealogies in the Bible, we're like, we use every speed reading method we've ever learned. Like, let me just get through that, right? Because, oh, that must be, I'm, I'm, that was great for them. I'm glad they knew that. But what does it have to do with me? And the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 tells us lots of information about God and about Jesus. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. They, these were very important to the people of Jesus' day. They linked them to the past. They often detailed where they would serve in military service. They always they connected them to royalty, to priesthoods. The, ultimately, they wanted to be taken back to Abraham because they were a people that believed they were the called out people of God. They were very ethnocentric in their behavior and in their understanding. What they wanted in that moment was for their people to be protected so that God's message could be protected. So in Matthew, when he's writing to a group of Jewish people primarily, he is telling them about who Jesus is. He's going to link it to the kingship of David and to his ancestor, Abraham. Now, we're not going to read the full genealogy today, but I do want to focus in on a few pieces of it. Now, just to let you know, Matthew chapter 1, verse 17 gives us an understanding of what this is intended to be. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until Christ, 14 generations. Now, just so you know, they, there are specific numbers tied there. there are, there's numerical value that it's double seven. Seven was the perfect number. There's double sevens. Not only are there double sevens, there's three sets. Three was also considered a holy number. Three sets of perfect sevens that are there. And so the author, Matthew, is reminding us that what is happening here is that these, these genealogies, this genealogy shows us the perfection of who Jesus is. And one of the things that we see just as we walk through this carefully constructed genealogy, just so you know, there were many more generations of people that came from Abraham to Jesus just when you do the math than what we have here. And so it's a selective genealogy. Matthew's not lying about it. He just selected certain people to put in the genealogy. It's a stylized, theological And so when you think he's choosing the 14 from each generation or from each segment, then who's included and who's excluded has major importance. And we see some very recognizable names in here. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon. There are also some kind of names in here that you wouldn't expect because they are not people that lived good lives. Joraz and Amon and Ahaz, kings in the line of David who did not perform as they should. And so when we look at this passage, we ask the question, why are the people here that are here? And that's why there's a certain group of people that are included in this list that is especially fascinating. Because there's a group of people included in this list that were almost never included in lists like this. In the midst of this list of the ancestry of Jesus, there are five women listed. 
And you say, ooh, what's, that's not a big deal. Like you would expect women. When I, when I did my 23 and me, it came back my father's and my mother's. There's both there. We expect that when we're tracing history. But in Jewish culture, in that day, they never put women in the list. It was a patriarchal society in every sense of the word. And they only cared about the tracing of their lineage through their fathers back to Abraham. And so if these women who were never included in these lists are here, there must be significance to them being here. But what's more interesting is it's not just four or five ultra-righteous women that are here. There are four women, all of whom... Now, the last woman is Mary, and we'll talk about what it says about Mary and the way that it phrases that in a couple of weeks. But the first four are women that at some point in their lives, all of them had some sort of scent, or at least in the history leading up to Jesus' day, had been discussed in some way to be involved in sexual immorality. Now, we'll talk in a minute how many of that was not on them. That was on the men in their lives that had failed them. But they were, all four of them were connected to or had some history with that. And many of them have connections to, or all four of them have connections to, or are themselves non-Israelites. And yet they're here in the genealogy of Jesus. So why are they here? Well, let's look at who they are. And this is what I want to tell you what we're going to do today. We're going to, we're going to replay their stories, all four of them, in short order. And then talk about three things that it teaches us about our God. So it tells us just there from the very beginning that the first one that is mentioned is in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 1. These aren't going to be on the screen, so I hope you have your Bibles open. Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, just so you know, we'll get to that full story in a minute. Judah and Tamar. Tamar is not Judah's wife. It's his daughter-in-law. And then you have Salmon fathered Boaz, or Salmon. It depends on whether you're from the south or not, Salmon or Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, the prostitute, if you look at any other place just about in Scripture. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, the Moabite. There's a commercial playing of something. And David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. So there's four women there listed, right? Tamar, the one who had twins. By her father-in-law. Rahab the prostitute. Ruth the Moabite. And then a woman that they don't even name her name. They just say Uriah's wife. So let's talk about these women. The stories that are behind them are fascinating. Especially when you consider they're in the line of Jesus. Tamar. Now there are two Tamars in scripture. This is the Tamar from Genesis, not the Tamar from David's life, but both of them have tragic stories. And Tamar in Genesis chapter 38, if you want to write that out to the side, that's where her story is found. I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of it because it's a fascinating story. 
Genesis chapter 38 happens the chapter after Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. You remember that story, right? They take him out. They're, ups- they're upset with him. They put him in the pit. They're going to kill him. They think they're going to kill him. Wild animals go, no, no, no. Let's sell him. And Judah's kind of the one that leads that charge. This is the chapter before Joseph is accused of sexual immorality with Potiphar's wife. And he flees from that scene and doesn't commit any acts, but he's accused of it. And sandwiched in the middle of that is the story of Genesis chapter 38, where Judah, it tells us in chapter 38, verse 1, that Judah basically walks away. It says at that time, that time when he helped sell his brother into slavery, perhaps the guilt in his life was too much, perhaps he couldn't handle it. It says he departed and he goes to a land where there are people that are not Jewish. In fact, it's a Canaanite land. And while he's there, he finds a wife. Now, we're not really told much about this wife, except that it is Shua's daughter. But he has this wife, Shua's daughter. They have three sons. If you're looking, listen, Old Testament, great for names. If you're looking for them for kids, Er, Onan, and Shelah. And so it says that they come and they get of age. Judah, you know Judah, right? Judah, the older brother of Joseph. Judah, the one that later would offer his children, offer his, his family in exchange for Benjamin's life to protect Benjamin's life. Judah, who it says that Jesus is described as what? The lion of Judah. It's his tribe. It's his nation. Judah's first son marries a girl, finds a girl to marry is what it says, and that girl is Tamar. Tamar marries Er, and he is not a righteous man at all, and so he dies. It really says God killed him. And so then the second son, in that day and age, this is the way it worked, and families are glad it doesn't work this way now, but if you were married to a girl and you did not have children and you died, your brother married the girl to give children to the family. Some of you are glad that's not the way it is to now. Can I get an amen? Just don't amen if your sister-in-law is near you, all right? And so some of you will get that joke at lunch, all right? And so that's the way it worked. And so, being the good Israelite family, he, he gives them to them. Judah says, okay, here's my second son. The second son was evil in the sight of the Lord, and it says the Lord killed him. That's two down. He's got one more. And Judah says he ain't old enough to die. And he tells Tamar, go back to your father. In other words, I don't want you anymore. Go back to your father, put on the clothes of a grieving widow. And when the time comes that my youngest son is old enough, then we'll think about marriage. So Tamar does that. And then she finds out that the youngest son is old enough and hasn't been offered in marriage. And she realizes Judah has gone back on his promise. And then she hears Judah Her father-in-law is coming to town. He tells everyone he's going to shear some sheep, the sheep shearers. And as he enters into town, Tamar has taken off the clothes of mourning and has dressed provocatively and has sat near the gate of the city. Judah, whose wife has died by this time, comes into town And is attracted to Tamar that he does not recognize. And he says, I want to go with you. 
And they do. And then he leaves. Three months later, someone comes to Judah and says, you're not going to believe what your daughter-in-law Tamar has done. She has played the harlot and she is now pregnant with a child three months in. And Judah says, stone her. How could she do that? How could she disgrace the family? Stone her. But Tamar had a plan on the front end. When she dressed provocatively, when she invited him in, when they engaged in activity, as he was leaving, he said, she said to him, could you leave me a few things so that I can know who you were better? And so he leaves the equivalent of a driver's license ID with her. So Judah says, go get her. She has played the harlot. Bring her to me to be stoned. And she gets there and says, before you stone me, can I show you the items of the man who is the father? And she pulls out Judah's own stuff. And Judah says, she is more righteous than I. That sounds like a wholesome story to put in the lineage of David, right? Lineage of Jesus, right? Have you all read any of that in your Advent devotional readings this week? Gathered the kids around and let's talk about that. We have not. That has not been on our agenda. We've read about other stories, even some other stories that are kind of crazy. What's crazy there is that throughout history... Israelites began to revere and hold up Tamar as a hero of the faith. Because she was determined to carry the line on of Judah and his sons, even if it meant doing things that other people would not think were right. And God, the Holy Spirit, through Matthew, thought the story was important enough to put it in The genealogy. That's number one. The second one. Who's the second one? Rahab. Now here's the thing about Tamar. Tamar played the role of a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. So the story of Rahab comes in the book of Joshua. Chapter 2 is where you can find it. In Joshua chapter 2. Rahab is a prostitute who lives literally in the walls of Jericho. Y'all remember the story of Jericho, right? The walls came tumbling down, right? That's later. In Joshua chapter 2, what's happening is they're getting ready to take the promised land. You remember the story? Moses has died. Joseph, I mean, Joshua has the, the sons and daughters of Israel, the people of God. They're going to move into the promised land. But in order to get into the promised land, they've got to conquer the people there. God's told them, I'll be with you. I'll take care of you. But previously, they had sent spies in to see how things were going. The generation had passed. And Joshua hears about this town in particular named Jericho. And he sends spies over, a couple of spies over, to check it out, to see how thick the walls are, how big it is. He's just doing some pre-planning. He's doing some scouting. And as he sends the spies over that says they entered into the house of Rahab, which, by the way, there's some discussion about that because when you look at the phrasing that's used about what they did, there are as evidence that they entered into the house of Rahab knowing what she was and for the purpose of what she was. 
That's biblical understanding of those words. And while they're there, word gets around that there are some spies from the Israelites there and that they need to take care of them. And so the ruler of Jericho says, we've heard this, and they particularly zone in on Rahab. And Rahab, while she is housing these Israelite spies, says, I don't know where they are. She lies about having them in her house. When the threat is gone, she takes out a scarlet rope. They climb down off the wall. They go back. They report to Joshua. Eventually, when the story comes that Jericho, the battle of Jericho happens, and everyone comes and they walk around, march around. You know the story, right? Blow the trumpet. Walls come down. The only family that's saved in town is Rahab's family. She marries one of the people that helped rule over the Israelites, one of the tribe leaders, one of Judah's tribe leaders, and she finds herself in the line of King David, in the line of Jesus. That's number two. The third woman mentioned here is Ruth. Anybody know where you can find the story of Ruth? The book of Ruth. All right, here we go. Good. See, and some of you are in your, I know some of you ate the pancakes this morning. You're in the, the sugar coma has hit, right? The crash has happened, all right? Ruth, the story of Ruth, she's, she's, not, a, uh, she's not a woman that is from Israel. In fact, she's a Moabite. Uh, Naomi, her mother-in-law, comes over. She and her husband are there. They have sons. Their sons marry Ruth and others and um, Orpah. And they, both of her sons die. Her husband dies. Naomi says, I'm going back to my homeland. Ruth famously says, what? Your people are my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. So she comes back to her, even though she's a Moabite, coming back to Israel. While they're in Israel, all of that's happening. This is during the time of Judges. If you remember the time of Judges, it was a time when recklessness was there, when evil was running rampant and all of that is happening ruth begins just to work to help to glean the fields to help make way she's shown favor by a young man named boaz and naomi says you need to go make that more than a friend named boaz and so she dresses nicely she enters into his place at night And the scripture says she uncovered his feet. There are lots of discussions about this, but one of the euphemisms in the Old Testament was uncovering his feet meant uncovering something else. She goes in that night. They are there. They fall in love in that moment. They have to make sure everything's on the right with another kinsman redeemer. That's what happened in those things. They end up getting married. They have children quickly leading to David. And then the last one, who's not even named, is Uriah's wife. What's Uriah's wife's name? Bathsheba. Why do you think they said Uriah's wife? I think that it's because they were putting in contrast the holiness of David in that moment and the holiness of Uriah in that moment. Do you remember the story, right? It says in the spring when kings went to war, David doesn't. He's up on his 
roof. He looks over next door. Bathsheba is there taking a bath. Lots of discussions about what that means. That may have just meant she was washing her face or hands, or it could have been she was taking a bath. That's what they were. They, that's where they would often do that. David calls for her. They have relations together. She ends up with child. It's not the first story in this line where that happens, right? Where the righteous supposed man of God has relations with someone he's not supposed to that ends up with child. What does David do to solve the problem? Confess to it. I was wrong. I should have never done that. What does he do? He calls her husband home. Why Why does he call her husband home? Because he wants her husband to be with his wife so that you could say, Hey, look. Isn't that amazing? His, her husband got her pregnant on leave from the war. That's awesome. But her husband will not do it because he says it's not right in the midst of war to do that. David gets him plastered. I know y'all think that's not in the Bible. It's in the Bible. He gets him drunk, plastered, and says, go now to your wife. And he falls asleep in the yard. Y'all need to read your Bible sometimes, all right? It ain't a Baptist book always. But he refuses. And then David says, I only got one choice, right? He sends a letter by Uriah who takes it to the commander and the letter that he is carrying is his own death sentence. They're going to start a battle and everyone's going to pull back except for Uriah and Uriah is killed. Now I want you to hear this, all right? Four stories. Out of those four stories, the one that's the most acceptable is Ruth, right? Right? Because the other ones, what have you got? You got a father-in-law with a prostitute that's his daughter-in-law. After he won't fulfill his rightful obligations, you've got a king taking advantage of a woman on a rooftop that couldn't say no because of their position of authority, who then has her husband killed because she won't do what he wants him to do. And then you've got a prostitute lying to authorities because she's sheltering people from another nation in her house. And yet, those are the stories that are highlighted in the birth record of Jesus. Like if I got my 23andMe database family tree and I looked at it and go, ooh, think that family, I'm not going to mention them. Amen? This guy that got another man's wife pregnant and had the man killed, we're probably not going to put that out front and center on the Facebook, all right? I'm not going to let everybody know about him. And yet... When Matthew writes his gospel, he starts it by highlight. And listen, when the Jewish people read this, they would not have thought, oh, that's nice they put those in there. They go, what? They put them in here and those stories? So what does it teach us about God? Three things and then we're done. The first thing we learn about God from that inclusion of those four women is this. God's grace is extravagant. It is unexplainable. It is more than we can ask or imagine. Jeff quoted that earlier today from Ephesians chapter 3. That God's love, God's grace, God's desire for us is extravagant. 
And it doesn't matter who you are today. It tells us it doesn't matter where you come from, whether you are a prostitute from Jericho, whether you are a Moabite woman that's husband has died, whether you are someone that has been coerced by the king, or you are someone who has had your father-in-law and his family turn their back upon you and not do what is right. And you found yourself in a situation where you were so desperate you did whatever it took. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what your story is, that if you trust in the Lord God Almighty, If you come to him in confession and fall on your face before him, his grace is extravagant. His love never fails. He is close to the brokenhearted. He will listen to those that are contrite in heart. He will listen to you as you confess, as you come to him, as you sacrifice yourself, as you think about what is happening and what he would want in your life. He is loving you beyond what you can imagine. His grace is extravagant. We can sing songs like Amazing Grace and sing them like we've sung them a hundred times before because we've sung them a thousand times before. It may not have as much meaning behind it because sometimes we forget how extravagant God's grace is for us. And it's easy to look at the story of someone like Tamar. It's easy to look at the story of somebody like Bathsheba. It's easy to look at the story of what's going on there and look at them and go, man, God's grace was amazing in that situation. But what we have to realize is God's grace is extravagant in your life or you wouldn't be where you are today. Each and every one of us in this room deserve eternal punishment because of the way that we have rejected him and the way that we still reject him. And yet God loves us. But God, who is rich in mercy, but God delivers us. But God, by placing the names of these women in this story, by placing them next to men that aren't just the men in this list, some of them are the worst you could imagine kind of being in the list. And you think, why are they here? It's because God is showing that His grace is extravagant. And secondly, He's showing that God's plan will succeed. What I find interesting at each point along this path is that God used each of these women and their lives to turn what seemed like an obstacle in that moment to the plan that God had set in motion in the Garden of Eden, and it turns it towards putting His plan back on course. He had intended for the line of Jesus to come through not only Abraham, but through the line of Judah. And Judah was threatening that because his sons hadn't had a child that would be an heir through Tamar. And Tamar took things into her own hands. They ended up having a child from Judah, but those children are the ones through whom the message comes, through whom the Savior comes. God says, I'm not going to let you mess up my plan. We think about Rahab, right? What's at stake with Rahab? If those spies hadn't been able to get back, if those spies hadn't been able to get the information they needed, if those spies had been executed, who knows, but they don't go find word goes back. Or they drag the bodies of those men back to the Israelites and say, here are your spies. That Joshua and the people around them go, hey, that's, we, we can't handle that. Right? They had already, a generation before, said they're too big. We can't do anything with that. God says, I'm not letting that happen again. I'm going to protect my men. I'm going to use Rahab. I'm going to use her and then bless her because she's the one that continued the story that I've been building. 
When you think about the story of Ruth, right, that she goes back and she's not going to let her life be determined by what has happened. God intended for that line to continue and he's going to continue it through Boaz and Ruth. He is going to get that situation together even when you get to David and Bathsheba. God used their line to continue the line that went to Jesus. Each time it looked like God's way was going to be thwarted, God says, "Uh uh-uh. Now here's what I want you also to see. In each one of those cases, at least in three of them, it was men of God who were refusing to do what God had called them to do that God had to correct. Judah was not following what God had told him to do. And so he used Tamar to correct the man of God in his indiscretion. David was not doing what God had called him to do. And so he used Bathsheba and that relation to correct the man of God to do what he should have been doing. In the story of Ruth, when they got back, Naomi and Ruth, somebody from that community should have said, I'm the next of kin. I will step up and take care of you. And nobody did. In fact, when they were given the option to do that, they didn't. When Ruth and Boaz fall in love, this is like the Lifetime movie thing here, right? Ruth and Boaz fall in love. They goes, but wait, there's another. Love triangle. It's the shortest love triangle in history. They go to the man, and Boaz doesn't present it very well. Like she's, I mean, you got to take on the, you got to take on the mother-in-law. You got to take her. Her name is Bitter. That's what she's named herself. You know, she want that. She came back. That's what she named herself, Mara Bitter. Um, <laughs> This girl's a Moabite. You know about them? Are you sure? And the guy's like, "Uh I'll tell you what. I just don't think I can handle that. He goes, all right, I understand, man. And then Boaz is running out of there with joy. But God, those people weren't doing what he intended for them to do. You know what's interesting about the Rahab story? They get in the wall. You know, they're there. They're in her house. And she starts to tell the story of why she protected them. And she says, do you remember this? She says, we've heard what your God has done. And he is the true God. I can't help but think in that moment, Joshua and his leadership has sent spies over. And she's kind of like, why do you need spies? You got God. Every step of the way, God says, my plan will succeed in spite of you. Here's the thing for us. we got to realize that God isn't looking down and saying, man, if you screw this up, the whole thing's messed up. We play our part, we do our part, but God's the one in control. Sometimes I hear people say, man, I'm just afraid that if I try to share Christ with my neighbor, that I'll say the wrong things, that I'll mess it up, that they won't be saved. Here's the thing. (laughs) You may say the wrong words and you may mess it up, and there's a good chance that sometimes that happens. But you know what? We trust God in the midst of that. He honors the obedience, not the deliver. Here's the last thing we learn, and then we're done. God's kingdom will expand. Remember what I said at the beginning? All the Israelites try to keep it in-house, keep it in-family, keep it tight with them. Here's what's interesting. All four of these people had connections to or were foreigners. Right? Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite, and it says that she was the wife, Bathsheba, of Uriah the Hittite. Here's what you know. You don't have to know what a Moabite, Canaanite, Hittite is, and all of God's people said, 
thank you, right? You don't have to know what that is. Here's what you need to know. It ain't Israelite. They were foreigners, and Israelites didn't marry foreigners. They weren't part, and God instead puts all four of them with connections outside of the Israelite family into the lineage of Jesus because Jesus wasn't a savior for a specific group of people in a specific time in a specific place. Jesus is savior of the world for all people in all places in all times. And it is our job to continually declare among the nations that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the moment we forget that our responsibility as followers of Jesus is to be the beacons in this world that carries the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people around us is the moment we forget the reason for which we were created. His kingdom will be expanded. So as we close today, have you experienced the extravagant grace of God? Have you experienced, first of all, this understanding of that He has come to save you and that you accept that salvation for Him? If you've accepted that, maybe you're in a season of your life where you've walked away or it's not been as easy. And today is a day that you want to say, Lord, I am here. I am willing. I am ready. I realize your grace extends to me now as much as the day I was saved. And I am ready to follow you. Are you joining in with the plan that will succeed, that will go forth? And are you part of the expansion of his kingdom? Are you praying for and giving to things like international missions? Are you helping in ways to spread it through our nation? Are you talking to people in your sphere of influence here and now. Next week, you're going to have an opportunity to give to our day of extravagant giving. We choose that word specifically because of the extravagant grace of God. We give extravagantly for the nations, for our cities, for our nation and our community. But are you doing this year round? Are you involved? Are you looking for opportunities to share Jesus and the grace that is there? Would you pray with me this morning?